the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 54. We'll read through the eighth verse of chapter 8. Hear now God's word. Remember that, let me set the setting here. Stephen has just finished his defense before the Sanhedrin. And so this is the conclusion of that. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. We should always remember that God is always and constantly active. He's always up to something. In fact, he's always up to 10,000 things. And when we add to that the fact that he is all-wise, he is all-knowing, all-powerful, then that should give us confidence that he is never surprised, he is never dismayed about the circumstances. And the cherry on top of all of this is that he loves us. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. And we know, John writes, don't we? That all things, I'm sorry, Paul writes, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that, right? Now there's a lot going on here in the book of Acts. Some of it appears to be really good. There's healings, there are conversions, there are baptisms, Church growth, lots of good things happening. But some appears on the surface to be really bad. There are imprisonments and beatings and death and persecution. 
This is a good time to be reminded that like Joseph's brothers, whose motive towards him was evil, nevertheless, God's plan and God's power was to even take their evil intentions and turn it for good. So Stephen's part in this story is an example uh, as his martyrdom will prove to be an ultimate blessing to Stephen, but more importantly, an ultimate blessing to the church and to the world. At this point, it's estimated that uh, approximately three to four years have passed since the crucifixion of Christ. So as we reach the end of Stephen's defense to the charge, uh, uh, his defense to, and and remember he turns around and makes a charge himself against the Sanhedrin, telling them that you, like Moses, uh, when he came and the people rejected Moses, you rejected that prophet that that Moses prophesied would come, you rejected Jesus, and, and like those who went before you who killed the prophets, you killed Jesus. So he not only defends himself, but he more importantly brings that charge to them. And Luke then gives us a picture of the stark contrast between the Sanhedrin and Stephen. Now we can't help but recall the words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 21, where Luke writes, and there will be a great, Jesus says, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony or witness. Therefore... Settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. We've already, so we've seen an example of this with Stephen. We've already know that when he even got into the dispute to start with that they couldn't answer him. So they had to come up with false witnesses and bring, bring him up on false charges. So we see now another reaction to Stephen. So what is the Sanhedrin's response to Stephen? The text tells us they were cut to the heart and that they gnashed their teeth at him. They were infuriated. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. That's how enraged they were. And then verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. What was Stephen's response? Verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Imagine that in the midst of What I just described at the Sanhedrin's response, there's Stephen. Then it says, he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
After Stephen announces that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the violent action that follows is not only an angry response to Stephen's accusations against them, but it is a rejection of his announcement regarding Jesus being at the right hand of God. Luke will frequently describe lengthy trials of the apostles, of Stephen, of Paul in the book of Acts. And he's not only concerned with telling us the story of those individuals, but also with the claims of the exalted Jesus and with the acceptance or rejection of those claims by the world. In these trials, two versions of reality clash. Stephen may appear weak as he stands before the council, but he actually acts like he's the one in the strong position, because he is. And so the authorities don't see what Stephen sees, and they refuse to hear this witness. In fact, it says they stopped their ears. And at the end of Acts, when Paul speaks to the leaders of the Jews, for example, he quotes Isaiah, uh, the Holy Spirit, and he's quoting Isaiah here. From, this is in Acts 28, the very end of the book. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to the people and say, Hearing you will hear, and you shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now, throughout this event, Stephen and the Sanhedrin, uh, Stephen and the Sanhedrin we see how God unfolds a chain of events that will actually turn out to expand his kingdom in the face of opposition. So as they're stoning Stephen, it's significant that Luke comments, that the, just almost as a footnote, that the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we hear about Saul. This is a horrific scene, one that this young man, that is Saul, would never forget. In fact, when Paul is in a trance and Jesus is speaking to him in Acts 22, part of his confession to Jesus is this, verse 20 of Acts 22, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. This unlikely man, Saul, will come to be the dominant character in the rest of Luke's account. So as the Sanhedrin is executing its judgment and pouring out its rage on Stephen, there's another scene unfolding, and Luke allows us to see kind of the backside of this story. And so we have here Stephen, who is considered to be the first Christian martyr. The word martyr means witness or someone who gives evidence. And when someone is prepared to die for their faith, they are giving evidence that they think this is true. This is the living truth. It is worth more than their own life. And the killing of Stephen seems to really have been more of a lynching uh, because actually the Romans had taken away the power of capital punishment from the Jews. 
So this is just a mob action that's taking place. Now, I suspect the Romans looked the other way. So just before they hauled him out to stone him, again, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God, but now Stephen sees him stand up. He's now standing perhaps as Stephen's advocate or else he's welcoming his first martyr. Stephen had just confessed Christ before men, and now Jesus is confessing his servant before his father. You'll recall what Jesus said in Matthew 10, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So perhaps that's what Stephen is witnessing, the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. The second thing Stephen is recorded as saying comes while he's being stoned. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 59. Of course, this is very similar to what Luke recorded Jesus as saying just before he died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. However, these were not Stephen's last words, which kneeling down, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And again, this is reminiscent of the first words of Jesus from the cross that Luke records in Luke 23, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Both Jesus and Stephen shout their final prayer. They weren't mumbling this under their breath. False witnesses that accused both Jesus and Stephen. And in the end, forgiveness was sought for those false accusers. Now Luke uses that one, what one commentator called... Mournful but sweet words to describe what happened to Stephen next. He fell asleep. F.F. Bruce said it was an an unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. This part of the story ends with devout men carrying Stephen to his burial as they made great lamentation over him. Now what? Chapter 8 opens with a dramatic and almost simultaneous contrast. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It's easy to read these verses quickly, but if we pause and think about actually what was really going on here. This wasn't wasn't a single event. It wasn't just on a Tuesday afternoon. This was a campaign. This was 
a widespread, sustained effort to stamp out the church, to crush it. The Greek word that is translated havoc, he made havoc of the church, means to dishonor, to devastate, to ravage, to ruin. That was what Saul and those who were under his charge were doing. This is how Paul described what he did in the the part we're reading about here in Acts 8. Paul later describes what he was doing as he was going house to house when he was before Agrippa. So in Acts 26, here's what he said. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem... And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were, and, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them for off, uh, them often in every synagogue and compelled or forced them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he outside of Jerusalem as well, wherever he could go and find them. This was no small thing. So this great persecution has suddenly broken out in Jerusalem so that many are fleeing to escape it. And this in a way, is the low point of the entire story of the book of Acts. The early church was facing what we hear now today as an existential threat, the threat to their existence. They were in in danger of complete disarray. Now, they didn't have easy means of communication either. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, and we're not told a lot about that, but no doubt they're being led by the Holy Spirit to do that, and perhaps uh, they're sheltered in safe houses, but they recognize Jerusalem is central, and so they stay there while most fled Jerusalem. In fact, our text tells us next, Uh, This is where we see how God takes an apparent problem and he turns it on its head. The scattering of the Jerusalem church results not in the weakening, not in the disruption of the mission, but rather in the spread of the word of God to new areas. The great persecution is going to lead to the great dispersion Christians are getting scattered everywhere, and this will in turn lead to widespread evangelism. They did not go into hiding. In fact, chapter 8, verse 4 says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Actually, it's the, it's the Greek word where we get our word evangelize. They were proclaiming the good news wherever they went. They didn't go into hiding. The word, again, translated preaching, 
uh, means to announce glad tidings. Jesus had already announced to his disciples, you recall, before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told them, you are going to be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So where are they right now? In this, right here in this text, they are in Samaria. Their, their and our adverse circumstances lead to new and important mission fields. The devil's plan suffered again from overreach. His attack had the opposite effect of what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution only fanned the flames. And if I may change the metaphor, Stephen's death unleashed a tsunami, a gospel tsunami, outside of Jerusalem. Oops. Verses 5 through 8, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. It's important for us to understand the incredible boldness that Philip and others exhibited in preaching the gospel to the Samaritans in particular. It began, uh, uh, the hostility between the Jews began uh, many, many, many years ago. It's been cult- it had been being cultivated, this bitterness, hatred, for a thousand years. It began with the breakup of Israel's monarchy in the 10th century B.C. When the, uh, when the ten tribes defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. In 722 B.C., Samaria was captured by Assyria, and thousands of them were deported, and foreigners, that is, Gentiles, were brought in to repopulate Samaria. That was a common practice. We'll take this people, the people we conquered. We don't want them to continue to uh, resist us. So we'll send them to a foreign place and incorporate them there, and then we'll bring other people in here to run the businesses and keep the economy going and to change the culture. So the Samaritans were the people who had been in the land while the Jews that had gone into exile had been in Babylon And so now they were side by side with one another. When the Jews returned to the area from the Babylonian captivity two centuries later, they refused to help the Samaritans in their rebuilding of a temple. And by the fourth century, relations were really uh, at an all-time low. The Samaritans were now the minority who held a very modified form of Judaism They had rejected the scriptures except for the first five books, the Pentateuch, and had erected a rival temple on Mount uh, Zerizim, uh, which eventually they actually dedicated to Zeus. That's how far they'd gone. So the Samaritans were therefore considered heretics. To say the least, 
There was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Apostle John sums it up when he explains the encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 9. He said, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jews might not have any dealings with the Samaritans, but as we will see, God does. Philip actually had some good news for them. Jesus had prayed in the upper room, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Philip is going to break a centuries-old taboo. Perhaps he knew that Jesus had already done so when he passed through a village in Samaria and was approached by ten lepers who cried out for mercy, and Jesus healed healed them, and Luke tells us, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Now Philip, representing the risen and ascended Jesus, Preach Christ to them. Many responded to that preaching, as we read. And what a dramatic contrast between them and the authorities in Jerusalem. They too had seen dramatic healings, remember? This wasn't like they didn't have any evidence. They had seen the man who had been lame from birth, who had been placed in the temple every day. He'd been there for 40 years. They saw him walking and leaping and praising God. In fact, that same bunch of people had even seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. John 11, John 12. They knew that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And in fact, they had employed false witnesses to say otherwise. They had just rejected the message of Stephen and brutally murdered him and had now launched a vicious and murderous persecution campaign against all the believers in Jerusalem, compare that with there was great joy in the city of Samaria. The word great can mean a lot. (laughs) A lot. It can mean loud. In either case, it was getting a good deal of attention. So, Stephen is murdered. God's people are scattered. Everything looks in disarray. And suddenly, God says, watch this. I'm going to start, I'm going to take all those circumstances, and I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to save Samaritans, Gentiles. And it'll be just the beginning. Now, here we are, us, with all of our mess that's going on in the world. We have been called to the stage for our part in this glorious story. Same story. The book's not finished yet. Thousands have come and gone before us, 
And God has been at work doing remarkable things in every corner of the earth. And he does it with unexpected people in unexpected ways. We can easily be overwhelmed by circumstances. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we think that under the circumstances, and that could be political or historical, or it could just be personal, that we have some kind of a disadvantage and that we cannot act. We are often tempted to be discouraged and dismayed and afraid. But the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. He is over every circumstance. He was then and he is now. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we stand amazed at the beauty of your plan to rescue your people, overcoming every obstacle and opposition. We thank you for raising up faithful witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are especially grateful for the martyrs who have sacrificed their lives. We rest in knowing that no matter the circumstances, that you will reign over them and bring about our good through them. Help us not to fear but rather to be bold for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Throughout the ages, God's people have faced opposition and persecution for their faith. This was true in both the Old and New Testaments, and and it has been true for the past 2,000 years of church history, and it is true today as we speak right now. Right now, many of our brothers and sisters are suffering severely for their faith. They face hardships, torture, imprisonment, and death. Our difficulties seem minor compared to many. But when we find ourselves in situations where we face pressure or open opposition because of our faith, we, too, are called to stand firm. We are called to faithfully represent Jesus. And when we do, we should remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Oh, Lord, what, what comfort, what assurance, what blessing, what boldness comes from knowing that you have given your Christ to the world and also given him all authority in heaven and on earth, that you have committed all judgment and rule to him. Indeed, that he is the only mediator between you and us. You have given us a great prophet. You have given us a great high priest. You have given us a great king. May we live today in the light of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is now doing, and what he will continue to do until his reign is recognized and acknowledged by all. Bless now our rest, our food, our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.